Hi, I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about what it means to get older. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Jay Nelson believes that regardless of background, everyone has a story worth sharing and that the stories of our elders are especially worth sharing and preserving. It turns out many of the elders and the students Jay works with feel exactly the same way. They are participants in the Legacies Project, an intergenerational storytelling project that's part of the curriculum at Skyline High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The Legacies Project was developed by Jay and his business partner, Jimmy Rhodes, who co-founded the nonprofit organization Nice Work Public Media, which administers the Legacies Project. Jay's here to tell us all about it, and he joins us today from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jay Nelson, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into the Legacies Project, I'd really be interested in knowing what your experience of older adults was growing up. Mainly, my I, I'm actually the only real grandparents I knew were on my mother's side. My father's father was killed when when my father was five years old in an airplane crash, so I never met him, obviously. And my grandmother on my father's side died a few years before I was born, so I knew my mother's mom and dad. And actually, her father, my grandfather on my mother's side, died when I was still, I don't know, four or five years old. But my grandmother, who was kind of my sole grandparent, I guess, lived to be... Uh, into her 80s, and so I knew her until I guess she died when I was in my early 20s. So not much actually, and I and I, I did have a, a my dad's first wife had died, and so he had a son, my older brother, <clears throat> and uh, because of that, he kept up a relationship with my brother's family. So I kind of had three sets of relations as I was growing up, and there was a, I had a grandma Schulte on that side too that uh, she lived to be into her 90s. So it was just my grandma Schulte, and then my mother's mother uh, were the only older people I really knew significantly. And how old were you when they died? I would have been, oh boy, probably early 20s, right? And my my grandma Schulte died a little before that. She was older. Um, So she died in my, uh, I guess I was in my mid-teens. Right. So the reason I ask is because folks in your generation, and I think we're probably in the same generation, I'm a baby boomer, we really didn't have our grandparents around as long as a lot of younger people are now seeing their parents and grandparents multiple generations ahead of them because people are living longer and so it's a really different experience, I think, that young people are having with seniors. That's true. And we also moved a lot. When, so when I was about uh, seven years old, we started moving. Mm-hmm. So uh, we moved away from the two uh, grandparents that I did have. So didn't really see them that much. And when we moved back into town, that's when we kind of reconnected. But, you know, there was a probably 10 or 15 year period there where I didn't see them hardly at all. Uh-huh. Do you think that shaped your views on older adults at all, or what sort of an impact did it um, have on you? I think I actually had more of a uh, experience when both my, my both my parents passed away a few years ago, and they lived to be well into their eighties. Mm-hmm. So I think it's been something for me almost where I've grown to appreciate it more as I've gotten older, and 
I think it's also partly because uh, I'm a television producer and have been for decades. And uh, my business partner who started this with me, we both came at it from the production standpoint. And I think it came more out of the sense of just two things. Number one is just having, you know, interviewing people in the course of our careers and discovering how many people had just interesting stories. You start to really sit down and talk with people. Things come out that just amaze you and you just never really thought of it that way before. And I think also because I'm I'm just a real history nut. I've been a history nut since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so as I was uh, listening to people and, and hearing their stories, I was just fascinated by all of these things that I'd heard about and read about, but never talked to somebody who had experienced those things. So I think it was a combination of realizing what stories were out there and the fact that so many people had stories that had historical meaning that it kind of created a need for us to want to try and capture stories as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, because my, my father was... It was part of the greatest generation, and you know, fought in World War II and all that. And so did Jimmy's dad. His dad fought in World War II. I think because of that, you know, every day you read about how quickly these World War II veterans and the veteran and the people of that generation are passing away. It just kind of created this urgent need for us to try and capture these stories before mm-hmm. they're gone for good. Mm-hmm. So tell us specifically about the Legacies Project and how that particular project came about. You've been talking about it a little bit sort of in the abstract. I want folks to understand this project. Sure. Well, it's an oral history project where we train high school and college students to record on video the stories of senior citizens in their communities, and then we do two things with those interviews. We post the raw interviews on a website that is co-hosted with the Ann Arbor District Library. It's actually hosted, I should actually say, hosted by the Ann Arbor District Library, and we also have students take that material and edit them into roughly four to six minute stories that we then show at a community screening, which is what we just had in the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor last week. And the way it came about was, it was actually Jimmy's original idea. He came about it because he is the youngest, I think, of 10 children. And when he was in his 20s, he found out that his dad had terminal cancer and his dad had only six months to live. And he said, you know, I never really had talked to my dad before. You know, dad was kind of the guy that you try and stay out of trouble and just, <laughs> you know, keep a, keep a low profile. So when he found out his father was terminal, he went to his dad and said, you know, there's so much about you that I don't know. And we both know that you're not going to be around much longer. Would it be okay if I asked you some questions? So they sat down and they had these conversations about, you know, his life and his, you know, working as an apprentice and his experience in World War II and all of these things that he never knew about with his dad, and he was fascinated. He, you know, here's this guy, he, you know, lived in his yeah. house his whole life, yeah. and he never knew this about this guy. And, it, and I think that it, that's kind of one of the things that happens, is we tend to, when we meet people, how often do you really burrow down into their story? You just kind of, you know, if you're meeting them, whatever context you're meeting them, and that's how you tend to deal with them. But you don't really spend a lot of time going, well, where are you from, and what did you do, and so um, that experience, he said, he said he learned more from his dad in the last six months of his life than he learned before that, and wow. kind of became a family historian. And then, so he kind of filed that away, and then a few years later, he had a, a favorite aunt who was uh, in a, one of those bad nursing homes, ones that uh, just, you know, were kind of warehousing people, mm-hmm. and he would go to visit her, and he said older women, he said mainly women, because they 
tend to outlive men, Mm -hmm. would be lining the hallways, sitting in wheelchairs, just almost reaching out, asking him to talk to them, you know, Mm. just to... You know, he said that he could, the loneliness was palpable. Oh, that's and that stuck with him. And he thought, you know, yeah. He said, you know, here, you know, his dad had, a, you know, died with his family. and But, you know, there are people that are in these homes. And he said, and I started driving by what we used to call nursing homes, now senior communities. And he said, I started thinking of them as buildings filled with stories. So he said, we started talk, thinking about a way to capture that and started thinking of students. And that's when he called me, and mm-hmm. he'd been living in California at the time, and called me and said, hey, I've got this idea, and I know you've done some teaching, and I know you've done uh, community outreach projects. How do we develop this? How would we go about this, and what do we need to do to get students involved? And I, we puzzled it all together, but I said, you know, the main thing we need to do is if we're going to have students do this for us, it has to be something that has value for students and teachers and schools. I mean, we just can't use them as conscripted labor to mm-hmm. uh, do this for us. It has to have, be a two-way street. We have to design something so they're going to get, you know, it's going to have educational value. Right. So he had moved back to Michigan, and so the two of us joined forces and decided to just start this on our own. The two of us just started working on it on our own. And the good thing was we were in Ann Arbor, which is home to the University of Michigan. So it has, you know, experts in digital media asset management. Mm-hmm. And there's a great medical school there and right. people who are experts in gerontology and just kind of everything we needed was right there in Ann Arbor. So, and I knew a lot of people from my work uh, in public television, both in Detroit and Ann Arbor. So we just started meeting with people and saying, okay, if we're going to do this, what do we need to be aware of? And I wish we'd logged the meetings because we took a lot of different meetings and then Hmm. we would discuss it and we would change our plan. And bit by bit, we kind of developed the project and figured out how best to do it and how to make it a meaningful experience for students. And, And plus, the other thing I knew from when I was in public television in Detroit, we were in the 80s, we were one of the leaders in community engagement projects for Detroit Public Television. And I was in the thick of that. And one of the things I realized from working on community outreach projects is that for sustainability and for casting as wide a net as we possibly could, one of the things we needed to do was make sure that the project was malleable, that could be done in a lot of different settings. Right. you know, we, we set it up so it could be done as a college class. We set it up so it could be done as an internship. We've done it as a two-week summer day camp, an art day camp uh, in downtown Detroit in a collaboration with the Museum of African American History in Detroit. Actually, the high school environment, which is where we've been doing it for seven years now at Skyline High School in Ann Arbor, that's the most challenging by far just because you have the limitations on travel and class time is usually around an hour. Right. The first time we did it was with the group of students I was teaching at the College for Creative Studies. It was a senior level practicum Uh and it was an all-day class on a Friday. So we could send the students out on a Friday morning with the camera gear and they could shoot all day and then come back and have everything done. But we had to figure out a way to make it work with the high school and it's been now seven years. So we, we managed to crack that code. So when you do it with the high school students, do the seniors come to the school, or how does it work? Yes. Okay. That's how we had to do it. Yep, we have a standing set that we created. And one of the things we also did when we were starting the process was we got a hold of a guy whose he and his wife have been very active in senior care, and just I a see. terrific guy. Uh-huh. And so 
we had him come in and in terms of working with seniors, we said, what do we have to be cognizant of here? And he said, one of the things he made us aware of and which we have incorporated into our curriculum is senior sensitivity training. Right. Where we have, you know, the students, we smear Vaseline on their on a pair of glasses and have them put it on so to mimic what it might look like to have blurry vision. And mm-hmm. uh, we have them stuff cotton balls in their ears so they can understand what it's like to not not be able to hear very well. Mm-hmm. So we do a whole preparation and how to with the students and how to not only be empathetic with the seniors but also be respectful. So we teach active listening skills and that that was one of the big surprises for us actually was the first time we did it with our class at Skyline we asked the teacher how it was going and she said oh it's going great my students are learning how to communicate better. We were kind of confused by that she said well you got to remember a lot of these students are growing up communicating with their thumbs, <laughs> right. you know, and she said that they, they have to have some training in how to do what we grew up doing, which is listening, nodding, and eye contact. Eye contact, right. Stuff. Yeah, and of course, employers and college interviewers, and uh, they all want to, you know, they, that's all important. Replicate that, that too. I mean, exactly. Wow. So we have one of the members of the students, it's a big high school, and the, the class is kind of far away from the entrance, so... When it's the seniors' day to be there, their seniors' day, the student team will have one of the team members go down to the lobby and wait for the senior and Mm. greet them when they come in, and they escort them to the room, and they do the interview and then escort them back to their cars and make sure they get on their way. Oh, what a wonderful experience. Is it senior high school students only or all levels of high school? The first time we tried it at Skyline, it was a brand new high school. We tried it with freshmen, which we thought was probably too young, and it turned mm-hmm. out to be, in fact, be too young. Mm-hmm. So now it's a junior-level class in this magnet program at Skyline High School. So, they're all so it's part of the uh, curriculum. Juniors of high school. It is. Wow. It is. Wow. And, a, and a popular part of the curriculum, too. We started out with one class, and now we're up to two full classes of right, right around 30 students each. So, Wow, that's um, fantastic. A, <laughs> Yeah, and, and the students, I was just there yesterday doing interviews with the students. Right, about tell, us, tell us about experience. some of your recent filming. Well, we just did the screening uh, Sunday, uh, June 11th, and, or June 4th, I'm sorry, and we shot it for the local cable channel in Ann Arbor, <clears throat> the educational cable channel. And so to supplement that broadcast, I've been going out with my own camera and gear and, and shooting quick interviews with the students and, and I'm also going to do the seniors about their experience that I'll edit into the show uh, in, a, in and around the stories. And so I was talking to the, the students uh, yesterday, just doing quick interviews, and they, they were universally just, you know, loved the experience, took inspiration from their stories. Uh, one af- young African-American man was talking about this woman, an African-American woman who, you know, had to face racism early in her career and became a respected politician in Michigan. And <clears throat> now she's retired and living in uh, the Ann Arbor area. So, mm-hmm. and uh, another guy, Dick Kimball, who was a legendary University of Michigan diving coach who coached, I think, I forget how many Olympics he coached. And he was Greg Luganis's coach in the Olympics. Hmm. But, you know, this, this one young man was on Dick Kimball's team, and uh, this young man's a swimmer. And so he took huge inspiration from what Mr. Kimball had to say about what it takes to be a diver and to succeed at that level. And hmm. so it, they learn a lot from the stories these people tell and the, the firsthand accounts of history, but they also get inspiration from things that they went through in their lives and knowing that they overcame huge things to you know, accomplish great things themselves. And so uh, it gives them, I think, a little bit more insight into what it takes to mm-hmm. succeed and, mm-hmm. as well as hearing these firsthand stories. 
one of the first times we did it, it was actually the first time we did it, back at College for Creative Studies, we had a, a young uh, African-American guy named Tamar, and he was interviewing this older African-American man, Booker T, who had been a bus driver. So Booker uh, was talking to him about his, you know, driving, and he was probably, oh, probably in his 80s back then. This was so 2007, so 10 years ago. But he told him about what he did during his career, and he said, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to drive for Greyhound, but I couldn't. And Tamar says, well, why couldn't you? And he said, because I couldn't travel south of the Mason-Dixon line. I couldn't drive a bus south of the Mason-Dixon line. Mm-hmm. And Tamar said, why not? And he <laughs> said, because they kill you. Yeah. And this young man actually kind of, his head kind of jerked back like, what? And I, had to, I talked to him about it later, and he said, you know, I've read about stuff like that, heard about stuff like that, but I never ever, ever talked to anybody who actually went through that. So I think when students hear these stories, it basically brings the history book alive. I'll say. Do they formulate the questions themselves? What are And what are some no, of the questions? It, How does that happen? It's, it's, it's a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the, the origin story, one of the things that occurred to Jimmy was not just when he had that experience with his aunt. It wasn't just that you know, there were all these stories there, but also the fact that the, the sort of disrespect that was being shown to these people where other cultures kind of revere their elders. We were kind of the opposite here. We were kind of shunting them aside, and people in those homes called them God's waiting room. And we both thought that was a tragedy, and that because we have such an age of society, one of the real core elements of legacies is to try and flip the definition on ageism, to try and change that dynamic. And the way to do that is to build relationships. So Mm -hmm. that's really a big part of what we're about is building the relationships. So when we first sat down to design legacies, one of the things that we came up with right from the get-go is that there had to be multiple interviews. It couldn't Mm -hmm. be you'd come in, do the interview, and leave and never see them again. There had to be relationship building. So the first thing that happens is we have a meet-and-greet with the seniors and the students where there's no cameras. So when we first bring them together, it's a chance for both groups to just sit and talk and get to know each other a little bit as people. And not only is that good for relationship building, but it's also good for establishing a trust level that will help you get better stories, too. We both know that from our television production Mm -hmm, days. mm -hmm. You have to develop a rapport with someone to get a better story. So we purposely designed our interview template so it would take multiple visits to get through it. So we start with earliest memories, any kind of naming traditions in the family, any handed down stories, anything, you know, from their ancestors that they would remember. And a lot of the questions are kind of repetitive, but it's going over the same ground on, um, in different areas of their life. So mm-hmm. what it was like when you were young and you were in school and then when you became older and you were in high school and then college or after high school or military career, marriage, work, all the way up to present day. So we have the students go through that whole template, and those are the raw interviews that Ann Arbor District Library holds for us. And then there's a break, and then the students will then convene among themselves, because we also know that it's hard to work on something that you're not really all that interested in. (laughs) So we have the students uh, come up with their own questions. They take some aspect of the senior's life, and they come up with their own set of questions, and they do a single-topic interview where they ask their senior detailed questions to flesh out that particular aspect of their life, and that tends to be what they uh, use to create their stories. I That's see. the ones that we show at the screening. 
And in fact, a, a quick anecdote, uh, a few Please. years ago when we were doing this as an, an internship with a company in Ann Arbor, Applied Safety and Ergonomics, who have been huge supporters of us, but they wanted to do a summer internship for some of their employees, high school age and college age children. So we started this internship program this one summer, and one of the people that this one student, Jared, ended up interviewing was a guy named Bob Chapius and his wife, Ann. And Bob, my dad would have known that name right away, Bob Chapius was in the 40s a uh, big University of Michigan football star. He played for Fritz hmm. Chrysler and hmm. won a national championship, and he was, he was on the cover of Life magazine. Wow. I mean, he was a big, famous guy uh, when he was a college football player. Well, one of the aspects of Bob's story, and this is the, you know, I thought Jerry would just do something about Bob's football career, but it turned out that in the course of interviewing Bob Chapius, Bob told him this amazing story about being in World War II. He took off college to go into World War II and being in a bomber crew and being shot down over Italy and then being held by some Italian partisans in their attic with the local fascist party headquarters directly across the street wow. from the military <laughs> drilling wow. ground right next door, told this whole elaborate story. It's, and it's a great huh. story. So that's the story that Jared decided to tell. Well, a few years later, Bob Chapius died. Mm. And because of his fame, he rated an obituary in the New York Times. Well, the New York Times obituary writer Googled Bob Chapius, and he came across our project. Mm. And he watched Jared's story about, you know, the 16-year-old kid who did the story on Bob Chapius and his experience in World War II. And the headline in the obituary ended up being about Bob's, you know, former football player, World War II veteran. And he quoted extensively all the way through the story <laughs> wow. from what from Bob the interview. Chapius oh, that's said about awesome. his, his experience in World War II. That's incredible. Wow. It was. It was a great moment for us. But, you know, it was right from Bob. This is a story Bob told. Wow, that's incredible. So what sort of changes have you seen in terms of the participants' attitudes towards each other on both sides as a result of this? It exceeded our expectations. You know, you spend a lot of time, I told you about all the work that we did to create the project, all the meetings we took and all the thinking we mm -hmm. did and all the stuff we wrote up. And you're planning and you're thinking, oh, this will be good, this will be good. And then we put it in motion and we were stunned at how, what a difference it made and how, what, it was literally a 180 for both groups that I mean, we had students in the early going who were, you know, a lot of them hadn't had much experience with older people. So they were nervous, especially after the senior orientation training, you know, are, are they, are they going to get in my face? Are they going to, yeah. are, are they going to smell? Are they going to, you mm -hmm. know, they were just very candid about it, but mm -hmm. um, honestly it, it turned out to be just the opposite. They saw them as people and they went from maybe being agitated behind somebody, you know, an old person in line at a grocery store who's having trouble with their checkbook or their, you know, finding their money to seeing them as people and all of the things that they've gone through in their lives, might have gone through in their lives. And the same thing is true for the seniors. I think a lot of the seniors, especially in communities where there's not a, a lot of relationship between the two groups, which we, we tend to be a pretty segmented society. Yeah. The students went from, you know, gee, they dress kind of funny and, uh, you know, look at their fashions and they seem kind of loud and, you know, that I don't like their music <laughs> and, and, they, and they see them as, you know, good kids. In fact, this last installation, one of the people was a guy named Bob Harrington, a guy from Ann Arbor who I'm friends with, and I asked Bob if he wanted to be a part of it and he ended up doing it. 
And he went out of his way to thank me several times for the opportunity to do it and told me how much he enjoyed meeting and working with the students that he was working with and how much he enjoyed the experience. And, and I said, you know, I felt the same way. I was in a uh, group of people and a lot of them were complaining about this younger generation. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I've actually had the exact opposite experience that the students I've been working with at, at Skyline and in these other places through Legacies just seem like such great kids. You know, there's always bad apples, but I said, they seem like they're just such great kids. I said, they're way better than I was at that age. (laughs) And I said, I actually feel better about the future now that these are good people coming up and they're going to do fine. And he felt the same way. He said, I actually feel better about the future now too. So it's the old thing that happens, you know, when you're unfamiliar with something, you tend to be nervous or afraid of it. And right. once you sit down and you engage and you get to know each other, you realize that you have a lot more in common. And and actually, one of the interesting things, too, was when we had the Great Recession, we were already doing this project mm-hmm. with Skyline. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the things that really helped a lot of those students at that time was a lot of the seniors they were talking with had gone through the Great Depression. So they looked at these people and, well, they survived it somehow. Yeah. Here they are, and then they're in their 80s and 90s and one woman was actually a, a little over, I think she was 101 that year. They all got through this somehow. So even though it seems scary and even though it seems like the world's going to end, somehow or another people survived and they got through it. What a great gift for those students too. Something right, tangible. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I think what ends up happening is that it's much more, as you said, tangible than we ever thought it might be. Mm-hmm. When we first sat down, we thought, you know, it'd be great stories and everything, but Oh, and one more quick thing about, you asked about how the attitudes change. One of the things when we first started doing Legacies at Skyline High School, there was the usual nervousness and we would do before and after interviews to capture the evolution of how they came to view each other. But after about two or three years at Skyline, there actually became a positive buzz in Skyline about Legacies. And students were actually getting into, into the magnet program partly because of the legacy experience because other students had such positive things to say about it. Hmm, that's interesting. So we don't even get we don't even get that if we do pre-interviews anymore. We don't get that. Oh, I don't know. I'm nervous about it. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, I can't wait to get started. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this. So that is really cool. So, so this is part of the curriculum at Skyline now, and it's a magnet it's, school. Well, they have several several magnet programs within Skyline. This okay. Is one of several. So okay. this is the communications, media, and public policy magnet programs, which but, is taught by Mrs. Pat Jenkins. I should mention. Mrs. Her, Pat Jenkins. A shout out to Mrs. Pat yeah, Jenkins. She, yeah, she's been great. <laughs> she helps. She's helped us improve the project. She's innovated, and we've taken a lot of her innovations and. And incorporated into our project design. We're always trying to get it, make it better. So. Uh huh. Well, is this something that can be replicated in educational settings that aren't maybe as? <laughs> it sounds like Skyline's kind of on the cutting edge here. Uh, uh, it, it it could be done anywhere. I yeah. mean, that's one of the things. Uh, like I was saying earlier, one of the things that we thought of consciously in our project design was making it malleable, making it so mm-hmm. it fit into a lot of different environments mm-hmm. and that it, you know we wouldn't be facing huge obstacles to implement it someplace new so like and like i was saying you know our the high school setting is our most difficult um but if the only thing that that's needed nowadays is really just video cameras and basic editing video editing gear mm-hmm. which is really inexpensive i mean part of the reason that this is possible now that it wasn't possible as much even 15 years ago is that great digital technology we have and video cameras and everything else it's possible to do this and not break the bank. You right. Know, I, I do. I do a lot of shooting with a two hundred and thirty-five dollar high def video camera I bought at Walmart, mm-hmm. and 
it's in every way superior to the $70,000 cameras that we used to use uh-huh. when I first started in television in the 80s. And it's uh-huh. way better. Uh-huh. Every part of it's better. And really, the story is the thing, right? So yes. it's really amazing how a good story can transcend any flaws in audio or video or shortcomings. That's, that's correct. That, that, and you're right. That is that it's just that the technology nowadays makes it easier to capture yeah. that story than it's ever been and, and cheaper. Uh-huh. I mean, you don't even have to buy, you don't even have to buy tape stock anymore. You know, it's right. all recorded on an SD card. <laughs> right. So, right. you know, it's just every aspect of it is right. cheaper and easier and better. So it, it's just the tools are better for telling video stories than they, they ever have been. And they're just getting better and better all the time. So. Right. So how much does this project cost to execute? And how do you keep your costs down? That's a good question. Well, there's a little variability in cost depending on what we're facing when we come into the school, or you know, depending on what kind of equipment and what kind of training, what kind of program they have. But roughly, it's uh, a little bit over $10,000 for the first year. Mm-hmm. But those costs quickly come down because we uh, have adopted a train-to-trainer approach to help with our sustainability. I've worked in nonprofits for a good part of my life, so I know how hard it is to raise money. And one of the things we thought of when we were designing the project was to make sure that you know it wasn't going to be an onerous commitment to keep it funded as school. So we like to look at it over a five-year period because we find that by year three or at the latest year four, the teacher is pretty much doing the work themselves that we that we had started doing our, at the beginning. Because of our training, we also have a lot of project materials that we develop in terms of not just the elder training that I was talking about or the elder empathy training that I was talking about, but in terms of shooting and editing and, you know, the proper way to frame a shot and mm-hmm. lighting and audio techniques and all that and interviewing skills and all those kinds of things. So the teachers are free to use those materials, but we receive to sort of an as-needed basis. I see. So if they have a problem with something or they need us to step in and help with something, then we, we go ahead and do that. But other than that, it tends to mainly be in the in the latter years of the installations. It tends to be help with recruiting, you know, getting things set up and elder orientation and the senior orientation and getting everybody situated and then being on call. And then later on, as they get into editing and storytelling, we're a little more hands-on with that. Again, depending on the program, but we tend to because we have editing expertise, we'll go in and help the students with problems they might be having. Mm-hmm. And then we also organize the screening, and then after it's done, of course, we receive all the video materials that they generate, both for the raw interview archive that the AE, the Ann Arbor District Library maintains, and also for the YouTube channel for the finished stories. The Ann Arbor okay. District Library, okay, cool. Yeah, they're, they're the ones that host our raw interview archive, which is a great gift because it's a, a, lot, yeah. of, it's a lot of material. Yeah, that's really awesome. Right, and you said the seniors are always coming to the high school, right? Yeah, and, do they, done, and where do you draw well, from besides, is it just nursing homes? Can you give us a sense of no, where you we, draw from? It's a combination of a few things. As, as we've gotten more and more established, a lot of times it's referrals now. You know, so many seniors who go through the project will come up to us afterwards and say, I have Senior citizens, not high school seniors, yeah, senior, to clarify. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, I should be, I should be, I should be clear. Yes, yeah, yeah. senior citizens. Narrators, we call them. Narrators. The senior narrators go through the project and they have such a good experience. They'll come up to us and say, you know, I have someone who's a former judge and she would be great. I'll talk to her and, you know, let's see if we can get her involved. So a lot of it now is senior narrators reaching out to their friends and colleagues saying, hey, I was in this experience. It was terrific. You really ought to do it. So Mm -hmm. that's made our signing up process easier. And then we'll also do things where we'll go to area 
senior communities and do presentations about legacies. We'll put up sign-up sheets. We'll go to senior centers because hmm. we want to try and get as diverse a group as we possibly can and not just kind of plumb the same ground over and over again. But mm-hmm. it's a combination of those things. And we've gone from having to scramble and do put a lot of work into <laughs> getting a new group every year. And this year, I think when we started... There's probably a waiting think, list by when, now. There is now. There is now. We had a... Uh, not only did we have a, a complete list for last year, but we had four people already from a year ago who are already on our waiting list for next year, uh-huh. uh, this coming fall. And then we have... Uh, some of the people from our last uh, group who are calling their friends for us and helping us uh, sign people up. Mm-hmm. I found this really moving on the website, the Legacies website. Attention is paid to the benefits of a life review for the elders mm-hmm. and how that improves their quality of life. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of life review? Yes. Well, that was something we found some of that information online, but we also some of the experts we talked to that were affiliated with the university in Ann Arbor. But one of the things that they have established is that when seniors, citizens, have a chance to go through their life and basically do a comprehensive life review like uh, we do with legacies, there's not only benefits in terms of you know cognitive and mental and emotional benefits, the satisfaction of knowing that your story is going to be preserved, that you know you're handing down some legacy to another generation. Uh, there's all value in that. And they did studies where when people knew that they were going to be interviewed about their lives, that their attitudes improved and that their cognitive measurements all went up. But there are also physical benefits as well. They also noticed that there was a drop in blood pressure, that the respiratory rates improved. And so that when people do comprehensive life review, there are just a number of benefits that are not just emotional and psychological, but also physical as well. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of older people are just used to being the recipient of help and the recipient of information and being told hmm. what to do and what's better for them. Whereas if they're active providers in the exchange of information, that increases their sense of of self-worth. I mean, nobody wants value. to be... Yeah. For, yeah, value, right. Nobody wants to be forgotten. And I think in this culture, we... As you referred to earlier, we tend to sort of warehouse older adults, and once you pass a certain age, you're almost invisible. So yeah. um, I love this this whole idea of older adults being active providers of information. Yeah, you know, I, I never had thought about it in that context before, but it's absolutely true. I mean, we've, we've witnessed that. And one of the things, and just kind of, I'm just kind of skipping all over here, but one of the <laughs> things that you just made me think of when we were, you were talking about the seniors coming to the high school is I mentioned that Skyline is a brand new high school. It's a you know state of the art high school. So one of the co- cool things that's happened is that the senior citizens who have been involved in our project they've never been to Skyline before. So it's a chance for them to come into this building and see this new high school that's in their community, and see these students and meet them for the first time. So it also ends up building a little community that way as well. Mm-hmm community cohesion. Yes, exactly. So can you see how the Legacies Project might be used outside the high school? Yeah, uh, we actually are pitching it as partly a a career awareness project because one of the things that we discovered as we got into this is we talked with people in gerontology programs at at, uh, colleges around Michigan that a lot of gerontology programs were experiencing a lack of students, and in a lot of colleges, gerontology programs were actually closing for lack of students, which is particularly concerning uh, for baby boomers like you and I, who, you know, as we're looking ahead, um, are going to need people to care for us. Right. And because of that, because we're all retiring and getting later on in our years, job opportunities in elder care and senior communities and, and uh, gerontology are expected to 
increase greatly in years to come. And yet there isn't this supply line because gerontology programs are closing. So Mm -hmm. because of our project, one of the things we realized is that students, again, what we talked about earlier about, you know, taking away the fear of the unknown, once they have this exposure to working with senior citizens and the values that it uh, confers to their own lives, uh, they become more interested and start thinking about elder care and gerontology as a possible career path. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways of helping to make that sexy is by pitching it as, you know, the video aspect of it and the, the tech side of it, right? <laughs> that's, exa- that's exactly right. And you, you really hit on that. We call it the spoonful of sugar approach from the old, uh, was uh-huh. that Mary Poppins, I guess, uh-huh. <laughs> where uh, we use... No one's going to know what that means from <laughs> that <laughs> well, generation. You, you <laughs> so, uh, but one of the things we realized is, you know, when we first went into this, we kind of had an assumption that a generation that's grown up with video cameras, everybody's got video cameras in their phones and everything nowadays, that they would be, you know, pretty savvy in terms of how to shoot video, but we discovered that they never had any instruction in, so they didn't know how to do it. So uh, we find that the whole idea of training them in the proper way to shoot and acquire audio and how to assess lighting and all of that good stuff is something that's really a pretty powerful lure. And in fact, one of the students I talked to yesterday at Skyline about his experience He'd never done any video shooting before, and a light bulb went off for him, and he's now thinking of maybe doing something in video with, uh, as a career because of the, how much he enjoyed uh, the experience of shooting. Actually, one of the things we've also discovered, too, that, and I, I can relate to this completely, you know, thinking back of when I was 17 years old, 16, 17 years old, is a lot of times uh, students that are in video programs in high school when they're given a you know an opportunity to do a film, well, you know, what do you do a film on? What story do you tell? I, I, never, mm-hmm. I could never have thought anything when I was that age. So one of the things that we found out, especially when we were in the day-long video camp in Detroit a few years ago with the Museum of African American History, is that students liked the structure of having somebody to interview and having to create a story out of the video that they shot with that senior because it took away a lot of that. Well, what do I do a story about? What do I do a film about? How do I do it? And mm-hmm. All of that stuff. So mm-hmm. it, it, I think having that framework helped them belong in terms of learning how to do the video. And then that also, once they had a film under their belts, it gave them confidence to then pursue other more challenging types of uh, video work. There is so much material to be gleaned from elders. There really is. Well, Jay, how can listeners get involved with the Legacy Project and learn more about it? The best way is probably through our website, legaciesproject.org. And if you go to the website, we have two links. There's an archive link at the bottom, which goes to our YouTube channel, which is a compilation of all the finished stories. Mm -hmm. And then there's another archive link at the top, which will take you to the Ann Arbor District Library servers. But uh, we're catching up with that right now. And that will take you to the raw, unedited interviews. Okay. Well, I want to offer you the opportunity to share any last thoughts with our listeners before we go. It's just been an incredibly rewarding experience for me. As I said earlier, you know, when we put it into motion, we had high hopes for it, but it just, when we saw how it exceeded our expectations in the real world, and one of the things that I love about the screenings is because we have the students there introducing their own stories and talking a little bit about their experience with working with their senior narrators, and the senior narrators there with their families, it's a chance to not only see the product, which is the videos, but the process, you see a little glimpse into the relationships and the connections that are formed. 
which is really what we're after. And the better the process, which is why we focused on the process so much, obviously, the better the product. Mm -hmm. So the thing that's been gratifying is just seeing those connections and seeing those things happen uh, and those the generations learning from each other. And just like the experience yesterday of talking to these students and seeing uh, how much they enjoyed working with seniors that they've never met before. Jay Nelson, he's the co-founder with Jimmy Rhodes of Nice Work Public Media, which is expanding the Legacies Project to schools and elder communities across the Michigan area. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to the Legacies Project where you can find out more about this wonderful work being done to bring together students and community elders. Jay, thanks so much for being on the show and keep up the great work with the project. It's really wonderful. Thank you, Janet. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, go to agewise.com and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. The Agewise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Thank you.